Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. On today's Currents episode, we have as our guest, Brian Hanley. Brian's an independent scientist with published work in economics, epidemiology, and he has worked in vaccines, including virus vaccines. Uh, Brian is going to talk a little bit. We're going to discuss uh, first, the economic consequences of lockdowns, economic and social consequences of lockdowns, i.e. that it is not cost-free to do lockdowns, and some ideas Brian has on how to get us out of lockdown as soon as possible. So, Brian, let's start with the costs of lockdowns, economic, social, other. Okay, so I went and looked for examples of big drops in GDP, such as we've seen during this lockdown. We hit uh, 4.3 back in April as, a, as the U.S. drop in GDP. And it took a year for the 2008 crisis to get down uh, that low. All of the examples that I've seen have been, have been uh, not V-shaped, but L-shaped. There, I don't really like the word L because it has, uh, it, it doesn't really describe it very well. It's a step. You take a step down and then you, you can get going at the previous rate of growth, but you don't recover what you lost. So what that means is collectively worldwide, we have lost a, a total of 12 GDP years which amounts to a total, it's, a, it's, it's, it's held pretty steady at $8 trillion per year, which is a total of uh, $96 trillion. And for the U.S. itself, it's uh, $1.8 trillion, and that's a 21.6, almost 22 GDP years, which is equivalent to an, an entire year's GDP since the 2008 crisis. So we have a significant uh, GDP gr uh, loss, and based on historical analysis, we're not going to get a V-shaped recovery. Uh, at right. best, we'll get a uh, you know, reestablishment to, to the previous track, but from a lower base. Is that a, is that right. a fair way to say it? So that right, right. And going forward from, from here with the coronavirus lockdown, we do not know what it's going to be. Now, I just, I just read an article uh, today, an interview with Rubini, and he's predicting an L-shaped, in other words, a step uh, for this, and that it's going to be deep because there are, there, there's a lot of outstanding consumer debt, and a lot of that is in people who needed to be working continuously. Uh, so he sees this as, be, as being a real problem, particularly in the U.S., Yep, I agree. That will be a, certainly a problem. And we, and further, we don't know how far down the down leg is on the L, right? Uh, it could right. easily, it, it could easily have, be 15 or 16 percent, not you know, uh, yes, not the yes. eight or 10 percent that you're that the 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 data so far shows. So we have to get an L down. We get a rise up, and then 
uh, in previous uh, recoveries, one of the things we do know is that the ones that are most strongly affected are young people, people first right. trying to get on the career ladder. They essentially have their heads held down for some significant period of time, and most of the analysis shows they never catch up. Right, because, because of all those lost opportunities going forward. That we, that we talked about with the step, you know, you, you're, you're tracking at the same rate, but you're, 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 you're way below what you would have been. So all those younger, younger people will not have those career tracks. Yeah. And then also, I think there's, because of the fact that essentially the economy's on hold for a while, uh, the normal growth you'd have in your career, like, so, you know, when you're 25, if you're good, you're rising very rapidly in your career in the business world. But if nothing has happened, nobody's getting promoted for two years, uh, you just lost those two years and you'll never gain them back. Yeah. All right, so we have an clearly we have a significant economic loss. Uh, the uh, most likely, and I think it's reasonable. The L-shaped model, uh, then at best, will. Uh, uh, get back on the same growth path. But there's also social implications. I know you've talked a little bit about uh, that lockdown seems to be increasing the suicide rates, at least in some areas. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, yes. There, there's, there's reports that we have had in the last uh, four months, roughly the number of suicides that are no, the suicide attempts uh, coming to ERs that normally occur in a full year, which is an indication that people are either psychologically stressed or or that they are economically stressed and they're just saying, you know, I I, I don't want to deal with this. One one or the other, or both. Yeah. Probably I personally a, I've been seeing uh, a new crop of what appear to be homeless people sitting sitting around at shopping malls and things like that. And the reason that they, they don't look like they've been homeless very long is, you know, they, they're, they're normally fed. They don't look, their skin isn't weathered, all the rest of it. Um, and, they're, and they're all young. Yeah, we know an awful lot, what, 50% of Americans approximately have less than $500 worth of liquid financial reserves. And so yeah. uh, being out of work for two months, even at a lower than average consumption rate, because that's the, the only good news about this shit show, is that our consumption rates are also way down. So we've uh, reduced our reserves less than we otherwise would have. But still, if, you're, if your reserve's $500, there's going to be a lot of people that are at or near the edge uh, right now. So let's take both of those elements, uh, potential long-term damage to the economy, uh, social costs in terms of probably mental health, either first order from the stress of lockdown and the threat of the disease, and two, from the economic consequences, leading to maybe as much as a 300% increase in suicides uh, as long as the lockdown occurs. So if we, if we stipulate- possibly going forward, you know, with, with the, the economic stress will continue and it will probably increase. We have never had this kind of, of a dramatic job loss ever in history. That is correct. Never. We're in, uh, in uncharted territory, uh, though I do have some reason to be optimistic in that uh, if we go back to our Keynesian analysis of the long-term failure of modern, uh, modern financial capitalism, it tends to be uh, lack of demand as opposed to lack of supply. And so one thing I'm looking for that we may have a little bit of V-shape comes from the fact that Demand is, uh, I mean, yeah, uh, demand has not been met for a long time. For instance, car sales have fallen by a tremendous amount of, uh, of sales. When this is over, car sales, I suspect, will 
rebound to above their normal baseline for a while. Uh, there may be some other categories uh, that will also rebound, uh, you know, uh, uh, optional surgery, for instance, will rebound afterwards, but uh, not for long and maybe not enough to produce, probably not enough to produce a V-shaped recovery. Yeah, that's what Rubini says. Yeah. So there'll be an initial, an, an initial U-shape start and then it'll, that, that will disappear and it'll just be an L. Okay, let's take that as a given. Uh, well, let's just stipulate it for what comes next, that uh, the costs of lockdown are very substantial economically. They're very substantial socially in terms of impact on young people's career opportunities. And they're, uh, we pay a substantial cost in terms of raw deaths, in terms of suicide. Uh, so what's the alternative? Uh, at this point, I should add that uh, Brian is, uh, has experience in viral vaccines, including having made his own uh, COVID-19 vaccine and had given it to himself. So with that, what should we do? Let me preface this by talking about vaccines a little bit because there's more than one type. The original, the original vaccine is uh, vaccinia, which was the smallpox vaccine, which was the uh, serendipitous discovery that cowpox would if would infect humans and cause mild disease, and then those people were protected from smallpox. There haven't been very many of those going. Well, well there, there's been, as far as I know, there's been no other such vaccine since. In the 50s, we started developing uh, attenuated vaccines by passaging viruses in cell cultures. And over time, those would adapt to the cell culture and they would become mild diseases for humans. That's how we got the measles vaccine that we use today. That's how the original Salk vaccine was made. That's also how the second, the second vaccine was made that followed it. Um, the problem with that type of vaccine is it's kind of a black box and back then we didn't do sequencing. We didn't really know how far it was away. So a vaccine of that type could potentially revert to virulence. And the Salk vaccine did that in a very small number of cases. So it, we stopped using that. We created regulations to deal with that kind of situation. We haven't updated them since. Since then, we've, we've learned a the, the structure of DNA. We've learned how to sequence rapidly. We, we can get the sequence for a, a new disease once we identify it pretty quickly. The SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, the, the Wuhan strain, was sequenced and posted by the 10th of January. And today, we can use that data to rationally design vaccines because we also understand the genes of, of viruses much better. So, so we can go in and we, we can look at that and we can make decisions. Now, there are several kinds of non-living vaccines and non-living vaccines are inherently safer because they're not going to cause disease. They're safe for immunocompromised people. And the, the, the original ones were killed vaccines that's, that's what the current influenza, uh, yearly influenza vaccine is. It's a killed vaccine. So what I'm, going, what I'm going to propose is really an expansion and version 
of what we already do every year to deal with influenza. The next step from killed vaccines is you can, you can take components of, of the virus, the proteins, and you can combine those with adjuvants and inject those, and those will create an immune response. They are pretty good at generating uh, antibody responses. They're fair, depending on the kind of adjuvant, at generating CD8 responses. CD8 T cells are what clears a virus infection. There have been studies done in mice where if you, if you don't have the CD8s, you can have any amount of, of antibodies, those mice will die. They'll die more slowly the more antibodies they have, but they will still die because you have to get rid of the factories that are producing the virus in order to defeat it. And that's what CD8 T cells do. The most modern type of vaccine are uh, nucleotide vaccines, of which there are two kinds. There's DNA vaccines, which were invented in the late 80s, early 90s. And I did a, a year of my graduate school work with Gary Rhodes, who was the inventor of DNA vaccines. One of the things we discussed was how he had never seen, and basically, if you keep the design straightforward, you know, keep it simple, you code for proteins that are there in the virus natively, without modifying them, or if you modify them very, very to it very, very little, you will get a successful vaccine. He had never seen an instance where this didn't work with DNA vaccines. In this century, we have developed RNA vaccines as, as a practicality. And because of the way that they developed the technology, we can create RNA vaccines and roll them out as fast as we can DNA vaccines, but we, we can manufacture them much more quickly. You can manufacture on a tabletop for RNA vaccines millions, potentially millions of doses, which, makes it some, which means that you've got something there that scales well for rollout. DNA vaccines, at this point, nobody's figured out how to make them scale as well. My, my uh, vaccine was a DNA type vaccine. I probably designed it around the same time Moderna was designing theirs. Uh, they had a, an application into the FDA by uh, early February and they got approved for a clinical trial in early March. I tested uh, the DNA vaccine that I uh, designed on myself and a couple of colleagues who we were co-developers, so we did it under self-experimentation rules. And those appear, you know, it, it's certainly safe, which is, you know, what we expected because there's, there's very little reason to think that you wouldn't have a safe vaccine. It appears to be effective. I've tried to, well, I, I, I have exposed myself multiple times to people who were diagnosed as sick with COVID-19. I have not gotten uh, symptoms. That is, of course, not in itself a proof because some people, a lot of people in the population don't get symptoms, but I am in the high-risk category at my age and because I have asthma and have had it most of my life. So with this as background, what I'm saying is there is no reason today why we aren't rolling out vaccines like Moderna's vaccine 
right away and do it as a rolling, as, as a rollout trial. You monitor it, you look at it, but you always evaluate it from the point of view of, we have a disaster here. Essentially, it should be wartime rules, not the kind of rules you have when you're assuming that everything has to be absolutely perfected and all the T's crossed and all the I's dotted. Because for vaccines, particularly for vaccines that aren't alive, there's very little reason and to, to think that there's going to be a serious problem, particularly in adults. Now, we had a previous conversation about this topic, a little side conversation, and I was kind of surprised uh, by the data on how many uh, Americans have died from vaccines uh, since 1950. Uh, that might be an interesting uh, data point. Yeah, to I've done my there. best to, okay, I've done my best to uh, come up with a number, and that number is below 200. Um, it's probably on the order of 100. Uh, the majority of the real serious casualties were in, um, well, the, the early ones were, were with the Salk vaccine. There were thousands of children who got uh, polio from it. There are people who have gotten Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is arguable whether or not it's related to vaccines. There, the, it has been accepted kind of provisionally as possibly related to vaccines, but it's far more, more common and likely that it was related to uh, an actual illness with, with an actual uh, virus. So bottom line is the, the, the risks from modern vaccines are, in terms of deaths at least, are minuscule. Uh, very, very low. There was, a, there was a, um, an RSV vaccine, a killed RSV vaccine made in the, in, it came out in 56, which was pulled because there were some instances of children under the age of two who appeared to have uh, a worse course of disease because they had the, the, uh, the vaccine. That wasn't true for anyone over the age of two. So it could have been, as with some other vaccines that could have been simply not used in children of that age group. But that kind of thing is pretty darn rare. You know, there, there's there, the, the, you know, the rest of it, it. One of the interesting things about the anti-vaccination people is that virtually all of what they cite is just basically made up. It's not, it's not real stuff. Um, or it's wildly exaggerated. Uh, so the argument is that uh, modern vaccines uh, are relatively safe, but the other half of the FDA standard for uh, any kind of medication is that it also be effective. Uh, how, how would we make sure, have, or I guess we can't make sure, but how would we have any reasonable confidence that these new startup vaccines, of which there's been you know, human trials on small numbers, uh, are actually effective? We don't want to vaccinate right. a whole bunch of people with a vaccine that doesn't provide actual immunity. Right. Now, there are, with all vaccines, except one, the smallpox vaccine, there are there's a range of immunity that is provided by them. The yearly influenza vaccine, based on epidemiology, 
it's estimated that somewhere around 30% of everyone who's vaccinated actually gets the flu, but they get such a light case that they don't even know it. Those people can potentially infect others for a short period of time. Measles vaccine, which is even a live attenuated vaccine, has had failures. Now, some of those failures are probably because of uh, poor storage conditions. The, 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 the measles vaccine is a live attenuated vaccine. And if it's not kept at the right temperature and under the right conditions and all the rest of it, it will, you know, it, it'll, it'll die. And so you won't get an effective vaccination from that. Um, there are instances where there have been there there have been people who were who had the measles vaccine who were later infected by people who didn't have it and got measles and you know were spreading the virus all over. Now those people were protected. So in vaccinology we talk about uh, protection and we talk about sterilization. So the goal is a sterilizing vaccine. And what that means is that you will have not just CD8 T cells, but you will have high enough antibody levels that if you get a normal dose of the virus, you'll essentially get no, no infection or there will be nothing seen. And so, for example, in mouse studies, what they would do is they would, they would expose a bunch of vaccinated mice to a virus, and then two days later, they would kill the mice and they would look in the lungs to see if, to, if there's any evidence of virus in the lungs. And a, a, a really good vaccine will have no evidence of virus in the lungs. So um, what, what we've seen in most, in most mammals, if you use a DNA vaccine or an RNA vaccine on them, they will get a, they will get a good uh, antibody response and a good CD8 response. For reasons that are not fully understood, when you inoculate primates with a DNA or RNA vaccine, and we are primates, this is sometimes called the primate barrier in, in uh, nucleotide vaccinology, you will not get a great antibody response. You may get some, but you, you're not going to get a really strong one but you will get a good CD8 T cell response. So what that means is that the, this kind of vaccine it, it is considered protective for the individuals who get it, but it may not be sterilizing. If you combine a DNA or RNA vaccine with a later uh, component vaccine for, that has a protein in it, those are good at generating antibody responses and after, and since the body has been primed to respond by the DNA or RNA vaccine, it will give you a good antibody response. And something else to remember when, when I'm talking about these rollouts is that just because you've been inoculated with one vaccine does not mean you can't be inoculated with another one. And that will, you know, vaccinology is full of multi-stage inoculations that improve the antibody response and improve the CD8 response each time. 
Something else to understand is that the current regulations are built around the, um, the antibody response. And this is a combination of history that that was the first thing we found out about was antibodies. And we developed antisera and horse serum and all those, and that was a revolution in medicine. But then that hasn't been updated. And even today, I run into physicians all the time who are not aware that antibodies don't cure a disease, that it's only the CD8 T cells that do it. So we have, we have not yet adapted the regulations to looking at T cell responses in people. It's a harder assay. It's a much harder assay to, to, to execute. Uh, it's, you know, it's a bunch more work. So that'll, that makes it more expensive. But it's also the measure that really, really matters for us. Uh, Follow-up question, though, if I'm understanding you correctly, and it's quite possible that I am not, uh, that if we are able to boost the CD8 T cells, uh, we'll keep people from getting sick, but we won't reach the herd immunity to keep it from spreading to the uh, whole population. Well, uh, that's, see, when you, when you are conducting a vaccine campaign, you have to get to 95% plus vaccination rate in order to say that you have effective herd immunity. When a disease goes through a population, you have to get to around 70%. Now, why is that? The reason is that the transmission networks through which uh, viruses communicate have particular pathways. They're not, you know, they're not completely flat. Each person has, you know, some people have a lot of connections that they can transmit through. Most people have very few. That's why in epidemiology, nowadays, R0 is not really considered to be a proper measure because it's basically a mathematical fiction. Uh, most transmission of disease is done by what are called super spreaders. And that's true in the case of, the, uh, in, in most diseases. And that's true in the case of this SARS-CoV-2 epidemic. We, you know, there are some people who transmit it to 10, 50, maybe 100 or more. The median is somewhere between zero and one. And then when you average that, all that out, after the fact and, and look at the curve, you see something that is called R0. But it's not, it's not, a, it's not something that's actually out there in, in the real world. Okay. Uh, Does that answer that, the question? Well, it uh, not really. Is it just kind of, that's a okay, side. That's a side story because you'll still get propagation, presumably. Uh, but I yeah. suppose your point is that uh, it doesn't matter. Well, well, well. My, my point is that if you're using vaccines to stop an epidemic, you either have to do ring vaccination, or you have to get 95 percent plus of the population immune and as an instance of that, we don't do that currently with influenza because influenza is, you know, it's not, it's not a vaccine that everybody gets every year. And so we, that's one of the reasons we have, you know, between 30 and 50,000 people a year dying of influenza as a normal course of events, because that's a pandemic that happens every year. We don't really pay attention to it uh, like we are with this one, which is the same kind of thing, but at a higher at a at a higher death rate. So, 
the point here is that what we'd want to do is we want to protect initially like first responders, medical personnel, um, the elderly, the people who are the most likely to die, to, 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 to be exposed from it and, and uh, potentially die. Uh, and, and the people who are risking the most. After that, we can, you know, we can roll it out to anybody who wants it. And that should be a huge number of people. Now there will be some people who won't. Um, and this gets, so, so this gets to how you can say, okay, we won't necessarily need to have a lockdown because most people will be protected uh, who would be the ones who are, who are greater, greatest risk and then everybody else can, can potentially decide for themselves. And, and so nucleotide vaccines, killed vaccines, and component protein vaccines can all contribute to that pretty well. And a combination of those can, can do really well. But if you want the most robust long-term uh, immunity, then you want to have some type of a live vaccine. And that would be a recombinant engineered vaccine, such as adenovirus with the uh, spike protein attached to it. Or you would want to try to engineer a rationally engineer a, an attenuated vaccine, which could potentially be done with this particular virus. There are some specific proteins that will, that, for example, there's ORF3A, which produces a protein that prevents the individual cells from producing interferon, which is one of the reasons why this virus tends to last, last so long, because it's stopping the body from responding to it as effectively. So can I... Uh, resummarize your strategy and, and the reasoning uh, again, and correct me if I'm wrong, which I may well be. Uh, we're paying a high cost for lockdown uh, economically, socially, and in raw deaths through things like suicide driven by both stress and economic loss. Uh, modern RNA uh, type vaccines can scale easily, are very safe, surprisingly so, uh, and are effective at, at, at least uh, keeping people from getting sick through CDA uh, T-cell uh, development. So therefore, there's no reason we shouldn't roll those out at scale right away, uh, presumably with at least some curation on which ones go out. I, yeah. I, yeah, 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 yeah. You, you're going you're gonna to want to have, you're, you're going to want to follow it, okay? Yeah. So. As, a, as a kind of trial, but, but not, you know, currently, as, a, as an example, there was a vaccine that was produced for rotavirus by Wyeth. And it had five cases of what's called intussusception in uh, infants who had, who had gotten it. And this is an easily treatable condition. It's where the, where the uh, small intes the, the, the intestine telescopes in on itself. Okay. And it can be, it, 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 it happens pretty regularly. It's, it's, it, it, it's easily treated. And because of this, Wyeth decided to pull the vaccine, which meant that there were, in the interim years before there was a new vaccine, uh, there were over a thousand deaths of children in the West. And worldwide, the, uh, the death toll is, was over half a million during that time. 
and this is and this is a readily vaccinatable disease. Now that is an that is an example of uh, corporate liability avoidance because of the climate in towards vaccines at that time, which was still uh, very um, you know the the, the anti vaccine people have been astonishingly successful at uh, peddling their 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 lies and and juries are easily convinced uh, so you know we, we've lost vaccines because of that sort of thing so what I'm getting at here is that when we do these rollouts yes we should log things but we shouldn't be deciding to stop because of something like on like that of, because of something that is probably unrelated. It, that 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 nobody in a in a in a military situation would 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 blink an eye at. Yeah, so I think that's the fundamental what, distinction. Yeah, wartime rules. We know there's some risk. They're not zero, uh, but we're paying huge costs by not doing anything. So whatever we have to do, from a legal or administrative or indemnification per, uh, perspective, to get it rolling, we should do. Does that sum up your argument and, pretty well? Uh, yeah, with, with with the caveat that. You know, the real risk is really, really low, um, probably is so close to zero that it is indecipherable. Okay, well, I think that's been a, a very interesting perspective, very different from anything we've heard from anybody else, uh, either on this show or in general, that uh, uh, we should take you know, some reasonably curated set of the vaccines and just go with it, accept uh, some risk, probably very tiny, uh, and get various benefits from uh, either actual immunity or at least people not getting the disease and be able to open the economy up for probably everybody but those in a high-risk category. And uh, well, the, the, those, those two things are not different, okay? You can have immunity and still get sick. This happens on a regular basis. You know, for example, I had, I had rubella twice, once when I was a kid and once when I was in college. And the second time I got it, I had a much lighter case of the, the, the disease. But immunity does decline with time. Um, it can also decline because, for example, if somebody gets a serious case of measles, that will destroy a lot of, a lot of or all of uh, some of their uh, populations of memory T cells and memory B cells. So if they are exposed to that virus again, it's as if they had never been, uh, they had never been exposed before. Got it. Well, thanks for that clarification. And thanks for being on the show. I think people will find this an intriguing idea and maybe the idea will get out and get thought about seriously by those people working on, uh, on our policy. Uh, so with that, thanks. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.